0: Episode 5, QA with the experts from the CCRG. You're listening to SpecsCast. Hello and welcome to SpecsCast, a podcast for discussing the science and technology of space exploration. I'm Phil and James is co-hosting with me today. Hi James. Hello. In this episode we'll be speaking with two real experts on gravity waves. Brennan Ireland. Hi. And Monica Rizzo. Hello. Brennan and Monica are researchers at the Center for Computational Relativity and Gravitation here at the Rochester Institute of Technology. The CCRG uses supercomputers to simulate astronomical phenomena and space-time itself. And the lab also develops open source code in order to visualize the simulation data. Most recently, the lab has been in the news for their contributions to the discovery of gravitational waves. Brennan and Monica, thank you so much for joining us today. Mm-hmm. Thanks, it's good to be here. Thanks yeah. for having us. Okay, so to start things off, um, why don't you introduce yourselves and what you do at the CCRG? Brendan, why don't you go first?
1: All right, sounds good. Uh, my name is Brendan Ireland. I am a third-year PhD candidate with the Center for Computational Relativity and Gravitation here at RIT. Uh, my research focus is mainly around analytic models of binary black hole pairs. That's so, so cool. Yeah. So, wow. so what that means is that uh, I take different approximation techniques for black holes in a binary system, and try and stitch them together mathematically. Uh, If you try and solve the binary black hole problem with the framework of general relativity, I bumped the mic, whoops. Don't worry. (laughs) No worries. If you try and solve the binary black hole problem within the framework of general relativity, uh, you end up with this horrible set of equations that is almost impossible to solve. Uh, and for a binary black hole, it really is truly impossible. So you have to go to numerical techniques. Um, I am trying to avoid that by cheating. Oh, you're so cheating. I'm, I'm cheating. Well, okay. I, I don't actually solve the equations. Okay. I approximate them and then say that's probably so good enough. So you said you've... Take an equation that's this is how it is, and you say, "Well, this is how
0: we want it to be." And then yeah,
1: you yeah. So have uh, have you guys taken Calc two yet? Yep. I'm actually taking Project based one, so I'm not there yet. Okay. Well, uh, you'll learn about Taylor series, which yeah. is a way to approximate a function. Uh, that is basically all of physics, as it turns out, yeah. is yeah. essentially Taylor. engineering two <laughs> Taylor approximations. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, look, this is how it works. This isn't how we're going to do it. We're going to Taylor approximate it take the function, expand it. That's essentially what we do. So Taylor series, for those that don't know, is any
0: function can be represented by a summation. You sum up all the, it's like x over something plus x squared over something plus x cubed over something. And the way you can simplify things is by saying, well, the impact of the x to the fourths and x to the 18th is essentially zero. So we're just gonna leave it out altogether and not worry about it. So over time, your error is pretty big but
1: not enough to care yeah the the only thing I'd add there is that um, the function has to be small the okay. thing that you're trying to approximate has to be something close to zero that way you can leave out these X to the big power right. terms so if
0: you so. divide up space-time into very small little uh, segments
1: well uh, I mean, no, space-time. we use time we use other we use other approximations so the okay. the trick the trick is actually um, so yeah, the, the problem is like you have to find uh, something that's very small. Uh, and when you're talking about relativity, you oftentimes don't have such an object because gravity is very strong. Black holes are very massive. Right. Um, but you can kind of get away with a couple couple things. Uh, what we use is something called a slow motion approximation. That sounds awesome. So, <laughs> so slow, <laughs> slow, motion, slow motion is not slow motion here on Earth. We're talking about... Still, uh, fractions the speed of light. So something way faster than you could ever hope to achieve. Right. But ten percent the speed of light is still ten percent fast. So (laughs) yeah. So if you're taking ten percent cubed, you know now you're at a much smaller, you know, one thousandth. Right. Okay. uh, So your your approximations can be okay.
2: Cool. Uh, Monica, why don't you tell us your role at the CCRG?
3: Um, Okay. So I'm an undergraduate researcher at the CCRG. I'm only a second year um, but what I do is I work with binary neutron stars which are oh, the that other thing. so cool too you get when big stars go supernova um, and specifically what I do is I work on parameter estimation models for um, for binary neutron stars so like uh, you know how we saw a gravitational wave signal yeah. and somehow we determined that it was this mass right uh, that's what I do but for neutron stars okay and, um,
2: so, neutron stars, they're very, very small stars, right? Yeah.
3: So, so, the thing about neutron stars is unlike black holes, they're composed of matter. Right. So, we don't really know as much about them. Like, we don't really know what they're made of. We call them neutron stars, but past, like, the very surface, they're not actually neutrons. There are some... Something we we can't we can't really tell because they're sure. really dense nuclear matter. Right, and they're not we very can,
0: bright either, so we can't observe them from great distances. Is that right? Or um, are they bright? They
1: can be very bright, actually. Um, yeah. Oftentimes, if they're rotating very rapidly. Oh, a quasar, right? No, that's called a pulsar. Pulsar, Qua- I was close. Yeah, <laughs> pulsar. Qua- quasar is a, an active black hole. Oh. I was way up <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's okay. It's, it is. It is actually pretty close. So, so a pulsar a pulsar is a very rapidly spinning neutron star. Um, it's off-axis. You get, well, nobody can see my hands, of course. <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it, think about it kind of like a lighthouse, right? So yeah. if the neutron star is spinning, it creates this beam of very, very um, tightly collimated photons and, and particles. Right. And that beam is directionally pointed in some right. direction. And so if the star is spinning, you can get this lighthouse effect where the beam whips around. And every time you see a... Wow. Yeah. So so yeah. the detector is somewhere out far away from us. And if I hold, if you hold your hand out and you turn around, at some point in that circle that you turn, there's the detector, so you get these clicks. Yeah. So pulsars uh-huh. oftentimes show up as just these very, very, very accurate clicks. Accurate. Why? Because they're so consistent? They're extremely consistent. They have a lot, a lot of mass.
2: And yeah. how uh, many times does this um, beam of light come around? Is it going very, very fast or is it every so often? They can be,
1: uh, some of them are, oh man, okay, I got to make sure I get this right. Yeah, milliseconds. Wow. Like wow. on that on that level, millisecond yeah. pulsars are pretty common. It depends. You can, sp- I think millisecond pulsars are about as common as they yeah. get though.
0: Okay. So Brendan, you use numerical approximations for your research. Monica, how do you... How do you estimate these parameters, especially without direct observations? I mean, thats yeah. is that the point of the research, is to figure that out?
3: Um, so, it's all theoretical right now. Yeah. Like, we don't have any neutron star gravitational wave signals. But um, uh, the, the models I work with right now are purely analytical. So, basically what he does is Taylor Series okay. approximations. Um, and um, actually, I'm starting a new project that involves, um, like, particle hydrodynamics, so you, you simulate the neutron star as a ball of particles, hmm. and it's a little more intricate, a little more accurate, but um. Yeah.
2: Sounds very complicated. It's <laughs> pretty cool. Yeah. So, um, if you could describe gravitational waves as an expert, what would you say if you had to describe gravitational waves?
0: They're waves in gravity.
1: <laughs> well, okay, so it's a uh, <laughs> This is, of course, a, a cheating, a cheating explanation. This is—it's a vacuum perturbation to um, Minkowski spacetime, which means absolutely nothing. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> of course, yeah, <laughs> that yeah, I know. That, great, great. Yeah, that, <laughs> no, that's, that's a that's a great explanation, and now that means absolutely but that's nothing. But it's very specific. It. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a very specific term. It's the way that you generally represent a gravitational wave is by saying we have essentially flat spacetime but there's some small perturber that comes through. And that small perturbation is the gravitational wave. Is
0: two black holes merging? <laughs> yeah,
1: it's it's the signal from the two black holes right. that have merged far away from us. Okay. So uh, if you want the le- the layman's term, which is much easier to understand in my opinion, is you can imagine space and time, space-time as, well, okay, I'm gonna use the trampoline analogy because it's easy and people yeah, use it all sounds the time. Good. Yeah, so you, know, you can imagine it's like a sheet, like a rubber sheet, right? And if you put an object, a massive object, on that rubber sheet, the sheet bends, okay? Now, if you, if you instead have two massive objects, okay? And you roll them- Not directly in, at each other. Not no. directly at each other, but like one, both in a clockwise direction or something, right? right? You would get a small orbit. Now yes. this orbit would decay due to friction, but if you imagine that we were in perfect magical physics land, <laughs> sure. we don't have friction. So right. these would just continue to orbit. Um, but it would also create ripples in the sheet, right? You can think about this in another way, which is if you just take your hand, which is mass, right? You have some mass in your hand and you stick it under water. You shake your hand around under the water. Just wiggle it about. You're going to create r- waves on the surface. That's kind of how gravitational waves are produced. Okay. Gravitational waves are produced by an accelerating mass. Okay. So if we were to get up and dance about, we would... Produce gravitational waves. But they'd be
0: so, so, so small that it doesn't even.
1: They would be incredibly weak, yeah.
0: How how small are we talking? Like smaller than the size of an atom or even smaller than that?
1: So the gravitational waves that were detected by LIGO from the merging pair of black holes, (laughs) uh, the physical size of the wave was one one thousandth the size of a proton. Wow, really yeah. really small. that's really
0: small. So like, this is
1: coming from black holes. So yeah. you and me dancing around would just It would never ever get picked up. Do
0: the one question um, I had last episode by the way Verified. The only thing we got wrong last episode was where the lo- detectors are located. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm right. proud of that. Take that <laughs> as a win. I, I, <laughs> I, I, did,
1: I yeah, I, I, I did hear. I did listen to your episode. And yes, the for for the record, yes, the LIGO detectors um, are located in Livingston, Louisiana, and Hanford, Washington. Thank you. I knew it was in, with an H. I knew it. <laughs> it's, it's okay. It's it's the world's worst locations to visit on vacation. Um, it's the best location okay. for a physics site when you don't you don't want a lot of <laughs> people around right. but uh livingston louisiana is essentially in the swamp and uh, hanford washington is essentially the desert wasteland so it's not terribly fun to hmm. visit but they're great for scientific detectors <laughs> very
0: cool <laughs> do waves decay that was my question oh wow yeah one in the same great minds think alike so black holes two black holes merging mm-hmm. super huge event causes some detectable gravitational waves. Yeah, they're billions of light years away or whatever it is. If we were closer to it, would we get a more significant change? Does anything? They
3: they pass through everything.
0: So there is there's nothing to make that wave decrease in amplitude. Brennan, you're like excited to yeah. answer it. Yes, <laughs> yes, they do. They do decay you as they more. travel.
1: Okay. They do decay as they travel. They have some. Okay. Uh, some. So, gra- the force due to gravity, in a Newtonian sense, is often called an inverse square law. Yeah. Uh, you talk about yeah one over r squared. Um, when you talk about electromagnetic radiation, so light propagating to us, that also falls off. That falls off as one on r. Uh, and gravitational radiation also has some one on r behavior fall off. So it's much. It decays much.
0: Faster. So so a
1: signal is weaker the further away it is. So we actually have some detectable sphere that ligo can see out to kind of thing it's i'm putting c out to in quotations since you can't right. see my fingers on the podcast but y- yeah y- you can see out to this sphere which means that any any event that happens within this radius ligo can detect anything that happens outside that radius the wave has decayed off the gravitational wave has decayed off to the point where ligo won't be able to detect it anymore so, so if a pair of bi- if a pair of binary black holes merged in our solar system it'd be bad for us <laughs> yeah
2: absolutely but
1: uh, no we would have yeah we would have bigger problems than the than the gravitational waves given off
2: right <laughs> um, so using the data from the detector what are we able to uh, do with it
0: how are we able to apply it yeah are we able to apply it or is it too early to tell
3: what, like, what do you mean? A so, fly? like, right now,
0: we finally detected them. We finally measured these waves and said, yes, they're real. Yes, we can measure them. Right. if However small they are. Is there any way we can use those measurements in order to inform new designs for things or even use the waves themselves in any application that you can see? This is total um, speculation. You don't have to have any evidence to support this. I don't yeah. have any evidence to support anything. I think um, so.
3: I don't know of any, like, applications of gravitational waves. I mean this was like the first direct confirmation of a black hole's existence which is pretty awesome. Oh that's that's and pretty cool. Yep. A lot of people since this worked out so well are going to use this to advocate for ELISA which is our space detector we want to put up there.
1: Okay. Right. If you're listening to this and you are independently wealthy please give us money. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, kind of branching off of that Besides actually looking for gravitational waves, is there a next step? Or is there more testing that we can do with that?
3: Um, I mean, yeah, we're always working to find better, more accurate, quicker models.
0: And now that we know what to look for, we can improve that?
3: I Yeah, I guess so. I mean, a lot of research goes into, like, more than just, like, the computing, like, improving the detector itself.
0: Like, the hardware yeah, that we use. Yeah,
3: yeah. I actually, um, I toured some labs in Syracuse and got to check out some of, like the interferometer technology, and they're working to make it more sensitive. and That's really cool. I yeah,
2: think. the more sensitive, the better, right?
3: Yeah, right. Okay,
2: so to I understand that we are able to conduct uh, simulations of black hole uh, gravitational waves, right? Yes. So. How hard is it to make those simulations?
1: So how hard do the computers have to work? Right. (laughs) Yeah. So this is a big problem. And it actually was a huge headache. You may have heard in the news uh, and the RIT bulletins and all that stuff that they say, they said something along the lines of RIT scientists Prove gravitational wave, the, the yeah. waves that kind of thing. That that isn't true. Uh, we, <laughs> okay. didn't, we didn't actually <laughs> Did you do that. What credit well, we, you got? We we I will give us credit where credit is due, which is that we um, our research group here was one of the three research groups to break through and be able to fully model binary black hole space times for the first time. Very cool. So in yeah, so this this idea of of doing these mergers on a computer was oof even thought of back in like, I think the seventies, people were thinking about these ideas and how you could possibly do it. And maybe with some kind of like time integration. So you step the black holes along in time and you just evolve um, a three dimensional met space as opposed to a fully four dimensional space time. So you split it into one time that you can step along and three spatial dimensions that you can solve. and that, that is essentially how we do it.
0: Yeah, I was confused. My, you,
1: my brain is exploding over here. I'm going to pick it up off the floor. But.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, what so, are you stepping along in your simulation?
1: So so what you do is you have... Uh, you, you take the for the full GR equations, and that describes a four-dimensional space-time. Yeah. Okay, and then we say, okay, well, we can't actually do much with this. <laughs> uh, it's great. It's awesome. But if you want to actually, like... Do something on a computer. A computer can't do that. they're Well, there are ten partial differential equations that are nonlinear and coupled to one another. <laughs> I'm I'm gagging they're, over. They're bad. You they're over my over head yeah,
2: right now. <laughs> they're
1: they're they're bad. You okay. have to solve ten equations simultaneously that each that each include second partial derivatives. Yeah, and sounds it, fun. Yeah, it, it, it. As soon as you have will a the, binary, it's impossible. Will to solve. this be on the final? It will. Not be. <laughs> 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 it, it definitely won't be. So this problem was huge, and people were thinking about this even back in the 70s. And then in the 90s, uh, it was the – I think it was the National Science Foundation issued this so-called grand challenge. They said this problem is really hard, and so we're going to challenge all the scientists to solve it. Go do it. And wow. nobody could do it for 10 years. Nobody could do it. It took until 2005 before people were successfully able – to merge two black holes on a supercomputer. So today it's become a lot more routine. Um, There are several very very well-developed methods that we're pretty damn sure work Um, and just to give like a time like a time step. So uh, one of the recent simulations that was done in the CCRG uh, was not done by me. It was done by Carlos Lusto and his postdoc Jim Healy. Uh, They simulated a binary black hole with spin so you have these these black holes have angular momentum uh and they simulated i think the last 40 orbits or something so the black holes orbited each other i think about 40 times uh and on the cluster on the supercomputer running 24 7 it took six months wow that's less than six seconds of real time like
2: holy,
1: like so they're there. spinning
2: more than forty rotations over six seconds.
1: The yeah, so so the bo- the orbit the black holes are orbiting each other very very fast at this point.
2: And do they get they go faster as they get closer? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, that's uh, just conservation of angular momentum. And you said these simulations take how long to compute? Yeah, so something that took nature less than six seconds to... Well, the, the signal that we saw was much less than a second, okay? Wow. And these numerical simulations can take upwards of months.
0: What if you forgot a semicolon in your code?
1: <laughs> hopefully, if you forgot a semicolon... Yeah, For if, if you're a bad computer coder and you forgot a semicolon, hopefully it will crap out when it tries to compile, yeah. so you won't okay. be running it. But right. yes, yes, having the code die on you is a very real concern. Okay. Uh, so what you if you want like the, the cop-out way that we do it is you, you write checkpoint files so you don't lose everything. If it's like the simulation yeah. was going okay, it was going okay, it was going okay, something went disastrously wrong, you have these checkpoint files that you've kind of backed up so you can restart the simulation not from the start, from right. the initial conditions. You can start it at some later time.
0: So this is obviously a huge computing problem, but um, like, that's an understatement. But I'm not sure if I'm getting the sense that this is as much of a, um, like an engineering problem, not engineering, like physics, right? You, we, we have had these equations, predictions for this sort of thing for decades, almost a century, right? So is it only computing that's the problem? Or is it that we have to kind of play with these equations enough so that we can make it able to be computed within our technology?
3: It's, it's a lot of both. Like you want to improve your computational techniques, but you also want to like find a way of describing the system that's not ridiculously hard to compute. Right. So
1: have you <laughs> How found- How much do we know about the neutron star equation of state? Uh, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: So you're developing new ways to describe these other things? Is yeah. that is that what you meant by the, the Taylor series approximations you're finding new approximations?
3: So so like okay. he explained one way is to take the equation of motion right and approximate it with a Taylor series and um, for example another way that I have been working with is um, you'd use what's called an effective one body model where you uh, treat it as one body orbiting the other and it's a it's a different like description of the motions of the system. So
0: in a neutron star, it's it's like, what is the true thing that like, you're saying it's a one body problem. That isn't a neutron star, one thing. I'm a little confused.
3: So binary neutron stars. Oh,
0: okay. So So you you have
3: have two neutron, like, like binary. So they're both
0: orbiting each other around a central, like a center of gravity, but you're modeling it by one orbiting the other.
3: Yeah, you can do that. That is one way you can solve this problem. There are, I mean, there's a couple ways you can go about these problems.
0: Yeah. I'm just curious to know what those yeah. are.
3: <laughs> I mean, there's no, like, bright right way, I guess. And um, it depends on what you're trying to, like, extract from. Which,
0: whichever one is most useful. Whichever approximation gives yeah. you what you want, right? Right.
2: Um, I just want to jump back to the... Supercomputer simulation one more time. It's really fascinating. It's sure. blowing my mind as we make this podcast. But in the simulation, are you able to see what's going to happen um, once they merge? Are you able to get that far?
1: Oh, are you, are you saying after merger, what happens? Right. Yes, we can do that. So what happens after merger is something called ring down. Um, so, yeah. So what happens is these black holes are orbiting each other and they're losing energy. And they're losing angular momentum and they are losing it to gravitational waves so you have to conserve still like physicists are really really dead set on this whole idea of energy conservation and momentum conservation like we will never give that up (laughs) sure i have yet to find a a point in which we'll give it up and there's a reason for that which is you know you need to conserve it if it goes somewhere it has to be going somewhere right so it's losing to gravitational radiation gravitational waves are being emitted It's spiraling in, and then once it merges, okay? Once it merges, you have effectively, well, okay, so I'm gonna talk about the binary black hole case. I can let Monica tell you about what happens if you tidally disrupt a neutron star, but um, you have one black hole. You just have a bigger black hole, but you have a black hole that isn't exactly round. So you have a black hole that is still uh, accelerating, okay? So it still gives off gravitational waves. So you get a an oblong shape, if you want to think about it in three dimensions. You have an right. oblong shape that just kind of like bounces back and forth, and then slowly oscillates down to some central solution. Wow. Yeah. So in the it's like a grab, little bubble
0: that yeah, kind of vibrates itself.
1: Yeah, just like vi- rings. It's called it's called ring down because if, it rings. Oh, yeah, okay. It, it is effectively thinking, like striking a bar. You know that that rings. There's an oscillation in the bar that rings itself out.
2: So is it uh, essentially trying to get to some equilibrium?
1: Yeah. Yeah, okay. it settles back down to an equilibrium point. Okay. And actually, in which is really cool, in the LIGO data, when, when this happened, when we saw this event, you see the ring down too. You see the merger, wow. which is this big spike in the data. It's just really, really obvious. You can see these big spikes in the data, which is the actual merger, the violent merger of gravitational waves. And then you see it just kind of taper off. Boom, and that taper is the black hole ring down.
0: So hmm. when you're looking at data from these simulations, it's like, what kind of graph is that? I've, I've seen visualizations that are like color maps and, and things where you it looks like a ripple in a pond, and um, that's kind of like what's you know, being best shared. way to imagine. Yeah, it's actually your wallpaper, James. Right. Um, <laughs> but you said there's a big spike. So yeah. are you looking at uh, the amplitude of like the warping of space. What are you What are you looking at? What's the metric?
3: So what we're looking at is actually called the strain, and that's in the detector. It's like the fractional change in oh, okay. length so of these big interferometers. You're arms.
0: simulating what will be measured with the detector. That's yeah. That I mean I wow. It sounds so obvious now that I put it into words. <laughs> <laughs> so you're measuring this. You
3: keep, yeah, keep it's called that, uh, the strain, and okay. um, we measure strain versus time. And when you plot that, it looks like like a sine wave that's slowly increasing in amplitude. Mm. And then at merger, it spikes really high, and then it sort of dies down. Interesting. You can actually, like, people have made, like, sound clips you can listen to. Oh, really? To you them. can yeah, listen to the black hole ringing? What? Strange. Yeah,
1: so... Uh, so we, we need is, to hear that right now. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, I can make the sound for you, yeah. actually. It's pretty easy to make. Uh, so the, the this, this analogy is... We don't actually, so we don't actually hear space, of course. Yeah, right? sure. For sound waves to travel, you need molecules. Mm-hmm. There's no molecules in space. What but you're gravity
0: hearing is a medium in this sense. Is yeah, what,
1: what you're hearing here is what it would, what the gravitational wave frequency would sound like. Now, the reason why this analogy works is because it just so happens that these frequencies are about what we can hear.
0: Oh, They're about a hundred hertz. Oh.
1: Hundred, a couple hundred hertz. Okay so you can you can actually hear this with your so some somebody so I don't actually have any idea who first started this yeah. practice. But somebody somewhere said, well we could just take this and turn it into a sound clip because it's the same frequency. Wow. So I mean if you want to hear what a black hole that's merger it, sounds it. like, All right. it sounds like this. It goes
0: <laughs> yes, that's, that's, it. It.
1: <laughs> that's it. You just you hear wow. it you know, it gets higher in pitch. It gets louder it goes and it's done. Wow. Yeah. So we call, that, we call that very uh, aptly the chirp.
0: I'm going to pause right here and say we actually went back and found the real clip released by LIGO of two black holes merging and this is what it sounds like. Okay, back to the show. What I'm thinking here is the first thing I thought of was whales. <laughs> space whales, man. Space so whales.
2: whale song. They're communicating through the space-time medium. So what you think? Two whales are orbiting each other very, very quick and then merge.
0: <laughs> Have you ever seen a space whale? Have you ever seen a black hole? I don't think so. Come on, think about it.
1: But it's a living well, organism. I,
0: the pioneers used to ride these babies for miles. That's, just, that's a SpongeBob reference. Okay. Wow. <laughs> okay.
1: So I, I cannot prove you wrong. So yeah. exactly. <laughs> exactly. I have no evidence to the contrary.
0: <laughs> oh man. Okay, speaking of kind of the extraordinary, um, after our gravitational waves episode, one of our listeners had a, a follow-up question that you guys are like the best people to answer this.
1: But I am more than willing to answer any question. I cannot guarantee the accuracy of my answer. <laughs> and I may make something up.
0: That's, that's but, my life story, bro. <laughs>
1: if you just fake it till you make it right. Yeah, it's my mantra.
0: <laughs> All right. Um, but Monica, I want to hear your answer to this too. Okay. So this question comes to us from our listener, Ramsey. Can you simulate wormholes with your theory? Like, could you simulate a wormhole with your simulations?
3: Okay, yeah, sure. I, cool. I don't really know what goes into simulating a wormhole, but...
0: So a wormhole would be... A jump. A, from yeah. connecting through outside, outside of the plane of existence, right? Connecting something else. Right. Connecting, you're folding it over <laughs> is the common description. Yeah. And connecting it, so...
3: I'm trying to think just like...
1: So wormhole solutions are acceptable. Wormhole solutions are yes. acceptable. We did it, James. OK. <laughs> uh, yes, you, you can you can do it. And if you've seen the movie Interstellar, uh, you'll know that. Yeah, there's there's actually. So the guy who uh, was the science advisor on Interstellar, his name is Kip Thorne. He's quite the scientist. Uh, he was actually the one who kind of first proposed wormholes as a possible solution. They do work, I will say. Um, However, now this is a big but: they are unstable to anything. So if you try and put anything through a wormhole, they will collapse. Why is that? Uh, Theoretically, (laughs) so space (laughs)
3: whales.
1: I don't think so. That's how they so the um. So black holes are essentially singularities. Right. Right. Mathematically, they're considered singularities. So there's it's just a point in space that has infinite density and a finite mass and no volume and that is the singularity, okay? Um, But what you don't hear as often is that you can have different kinds of singularities and wormhole solutions are ring singularities So when you talk about going through a wormhole and going through the throat of the wormhole You're actually traversing the ring singularity through there that ring singularity cannot if anything pulls on that ring singularity even a little bit even one particle it is exponentially – it will exponentially oscillate. So it it resonates with everything and will just instantly collapse. So, yes, you can. Are they viable? Probably not. However, there are a bunch of really cool and really out there papers theorizing about like, okay – If we had wormholes that you could force open and keep open, what could you do with them? And it gets real wild.
0: That that actually leads in nicely to my follow-up question to that. Would a greater understanding of gravitational waves and space-time in general bring us closer to warping space-time in a controlled way, whether it means wormholes or not, or just making waves ourselves? Um, And what kind of spaceship would be required to do something like that? Like... Spaceship? Okay. So, hear me (laughs) out. Making gravitational waves is hard, right? It it takes a lot of energy and whatever. If we were to use gravitational waves, like say we had a huge gravitational wave, just okay, we had it. What kind of energy and what kind of
1: requirements would it take to make such a thing?
0: These are fun questions. For right. me. So are
1: you are you asking are you, So are you asking about um, how could we use gravitational waves for space travel? Or how could we make a gravitational wave? How do I make one? Okay, well, yeah, yeah, if you want to make a gravitational wave, you need a lot of mass and you need to accelerate it really fast. So you essentially need black holes, which is kind of rough. Or neutron stars, Or neutron stars. Okay. Now, if you're asking how could you harness gravitational waves? Yes, both. Well, uh, so, so there's a... The thing that is always driven home is something that says gravity is coupled very weakly to matter. That's very good for us and very bad for us. So the good thing is that that means gravitational waves pass through everything. They don't They don't interact with matter. The bad news is that it means that it's really hard to get anything out of the gravitational wave. But If we had in, a big enough one. In, in the future if there was a way to do this, if you had some kind of matter that could couple to gravity, if you had some... Well, I hate to invoke quantum quantum mechanics, but you know, if if somehow you had some graviton interaction from some quantum theory of gravity, maybe you know you could you you could potentially use this as something like a light sail. Where okay. it's sail on or surfing, surfing the <laughs> <laughs> sure. waves. Space whales
0: riding the space whales, and then the space <laughs> whales. The space <laughs> whales doesn't make sense. And then if you
2: want <laughs> surfing. Sort of makes sense. It's a gravitational wave. Silver
0: surfer, dude. It's real. Okay. So, okay. yeah. there. I mean, Thank because you. there,
1: there is a background. There is a background of gravitational waves that is out there that is just left over from all the other interactions. And so, if there was a way you could harness that, then, yeah, you could use that to power some kind of ship in some way. Maybe like a light sail. Maybe not like a light sail.
0: Is there, are there energy harvesting um, potential? Is there energy harvesting potential with a uh, I mean, it's
1: an oscillatory with
0: electrodynamic tether?
1: <laughs> so well, again, <laughs> again it's it, it is not currently feasible. There's there's no there's no way for us to extract energy from a gravitational wave currently because, well, I'm going to say it again, gravity couples very weakly to matter and everything that we have is matter. What about what about magic? physics land. <laughs> I mean, imagine magic physics land, sure. I, the, the amount of energy that you can get out of gravitational waves are huge. So if like right now, I mean, this is
0: a kind of stretching it, but specs is a group where we, we like thinking about where space exploration will be in the future. And we're taking baby steps, but we're trying to make a difference. We're trying to have an impact and step toward that future. Right now, we're only working with CubeSats and um, high altitude balloons and um, yep. control moment gyros, another one of mm-hmm. our projects. And these are small things that could be could develop into huge different things.
2: Yeah, the reason I asked about the electrodynamic tether is because we're developing a project to use a, an electrodynamic tether to essentially harvest energy oh, cool. um, to power the CubeSat alone with that energy. As propulsion, yeah. Right. And that as well, and that's why I was hoping maybe we could get some gravitational wave energy, or prove gravitons, something like that. I don't know.
0: Yeah, but a more a more grounded question is: if I wanted to make this my life purpose, what could I do to work with gravitational waves? Like, what is the is there anything within our reach that is unknown that we can start developing? And that's kind of what you guys are doing, and that's one of the reasons why I I'm so intrigued by the CCRG. Is because you're kind of trying to answer these questions, like Monica. That's your that's the purpose of your research is to sort of identify and, and figure this stuff out. So what? It's kind of a really uh, is esoteric the right word? Esoteric question. I have no idea what that means. So that sounds I like a dinosaur probably. to me. Oh, um, but it, it's really out there question. But I think a lot of all the people listening to this, and, and including me. Want to know how we can, how we, how can we help? What can we think about? What can we pursue in order to further this science and this research?
1: So what I'd say to that is um, we are entering just a very, very, very beginning of this, right? This is the very first time we've ever seen something like that. It, it's like, and this is something that we humans can't even comprehend because we've always seen light. It's like the very first time you've even seen light. You couldn't imagine if you just looked up at the sky and saw the sun, you couldn't just immediately from that extrapolate and say, oh, that's an electromagnetic wave. We could use EM to power everything in our life. Like we are we are at the very, very beginning of this. And well, two things I like to say. First of all, there's well, I heard it a while back and I'm pretty sure it's from Benjamin Franklin, but I'm I don't like to misquote people, but pretty (laughs) sure Benjamin Franklin once uh, lamented about his uh, contributions to electricity and magnetism. He said, this will never have an impact on modern society. Humanity will never benefit from this research. He essentially was kicking off the start of the Industrial Revolution with his work in electricity. So we don't really know what what you can get from pure research. Pure research is always valuable because even if you don't get anything directly from it, it will always drive technology in such a way where we say, hey, we need better computers or, you know, hey, I need a way to detect a change that's smaller than the width of a proton. How do you do that? That kind of thing. It it drives this technology, and you also get this fundamental understanding out of it that may or may not be extremely useful. Now, secondly, I'd also like to say because it's the very first gravitational wave, we also don't know what's out there. What we saw was exactly what we expected to see.
0: Oh, that's like the first time in the history of ever, right?
1: Yeah, Yeah. We, we, we pretty much knew... Like, we're going to probably be able to detect binary black holes. We're going to be able to detect binary neutron stars. Like, we're going to see these things. And they're
0: probably going to look like this, and we've yeah. modeled it, and this is yeah. what we need to look for, and then there yeah, it we, is.
1: Yeah, it, it, was, it was exactly what we expected. Not well, not exactly. It, they were more massive than we thought they were going to be. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah okay. they were much bigger than we thought they were going to be. The but gravitational wave or the black holes themselves? The black themselves? holes themselves. Oh, okay. But, that's even cooler. Yeah. But, I mean, we expected to see black hole binaries. We expected to see them. We didn't know how often we were going to see them, but we expected to see them. So you don't know what else is out there because we don't know what to, well, again, the listening analogy. You don't know what you're going to listen to. Uh, and I heard a really cool talk um, at a relativity conference actually uh, two years ago now uh, where one of the scientists got up and he said, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make an analogy to a jungle. You know, if you're deaf, you've never heard sound before. And you got dropped into a jungle and then they just took the earplugs out and you could hear for the first time what would be the first thing that you hear and the first thing you could oh. hear are the really loud things right you'd hear the chirps of the, like the screeches of the birds all those all those calls right and you can make that analogy okay th- those are the black hole binaries those are all those chirps that you hear in the night sky now the next thing you hear is kind of like the background of the jungle all the insects buzzing all the frogs croaking that just kind of make up this ambiance and you kind of also would expect to hear that right and so we're gonna hopefully be able to hear that soon as well we're looking into that's called the stochastic background stochastic stochastic, stochastic. stochastic. It, okay it's essentially all of it's random it's just oh. a random background that is all the gravitational wave sources that you they're, they're too weak to detect on their own, but they all kind of add up to some low-level buzz.
0: Okay. At first, I thought you said sarcastic background. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Please. So, uh,
1: yeah, and so th- then his his final point is that in the clip, he put a, a little clip of Tarzan going in and, you know, like, you hear the Tarzan, like, little yell as he comes in on a vine and, and he, everybody laughs and he says, yeah, okay, so that represents, you know, what we don't expect, you know? And that's really what you want to shoot for in science because because finding finding something you don't expect is way cooler than finding something that you do expect. Yeah. And that's we've cool. done an awful lot to find what we have expected, and we're now just in the beginning of this. And so in the next several years, you might hear something about something we don't expect.
0: Dun, dun, dun. <laughs>
2: Um, I can't
1: even begin to comment on what
2: (laughs) (laughs) we could talk about this for days. I mean,
0: I could just keep coming up with questions. I had a couple fun ones for the end. Go for it, man. Okay. Out of everything that ever happens in the universe, what's your favorite uh, astrophysical phenomenon? Your favorite one, whether it be, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. Black holes. Yeah, they're cool, but space whales are cooler. (laughs) What about supernovas or?
3: That's a tough question.
0: What is, what's your name? Your top five. Your top three.
3: I'm gonna have to think about this. I don't have like a an immediate answer.
2: Well, I would say type two supernova. What
0: are type two? It's it? okay.
2: Well, I should actually let them explain that because they'll definitely get the details more precise. Yeah, oh, I think Brenna, I know. would you be able to do that? Oh no
0: no no!
1: Go! Yeah. I want to hear your explanation. Yeah. Okay.
2: Um. Well, as I understand it, uh. The, difference between types is the way that supernovas uh, occur. Uh, one is with uh, electron degeneracy and one is where um, just enough, enough mass uh, gets compacted to not have enough force pushing against it to keep it in equilibrium, so it just explodes. Am I, am I get kind of close that's there? Right? That's,
1: yeah, that's called a type... Uh, I think that's a type 1A type supernova. A. right? And that's that's when you get um, mass accreted onto a white dwarf. Okay. And it accretes onto the white dwarf, and the white dwarf can't hold it together, and so it has this big explosion. And they're very, very, very uh, bright, but mm. they're also really, really regular. And so we use those actually as standard candles. Oh, oh so yeah, you that's can, right. So you, you can, can see
0: what happened, okay. like,
1: really far away. Yeah, so if you see one of these type 1A supernova you say i know it's going to be about this bright
0: because it only happens at that one there's a very cri- yeah there's a critical threshold and it at always which, happens at that at which if it
1: exceeds the threshold it's going to explode uh so for me i i think one of the things i this is just something just random that i think is just really really weird um it's called common envelope stars so our sun is big ball of gas and, yep. there's a, and it has a core and it has some outer layers and it has a corona and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's an envelope, which is what you would call, you know, the spherical sun, right? But the core is really dense and the outer layers are really light. And so there are binary stars out there. I'm not, I actually don't know much about this. I just think it's really cool. There are binary stars out there that are orbiting each other so closely that they're, they're their envelopes overlap.
0: Oh, that's so So you cool. have a binary
1: cool. star, so you have two cores of a sun orbiting inside the sun. Wow. So if yeah. you were on a planet around, it would just look like what? It just ellipse? looked like one huge sun. And it, it's very violent because you're sloshing all this material right. around and you are th- you might throw stuff out. But, yeah, I think it's uh, it's just a cool idea. Can we yeah, possibly really get cool.
2: a simulation from the CCRG on this?
0: Personal uh, requests.
1: <laughs> so, if you want a simulation like that, the person to talk to is Dr. Jason Nordhaus. He does stuff similar to this. He does lots of supernova stuff. Okay. But he is always the person who you go to if you see something like, hey, they, they're doing something on on stars. What do you think? Yeah. So okay what about you
3: i don't know you were talking about type 1a supernovas earlier i i have a very specific background in those because of high school science olympia cool <laughs> yeah so i i know a lot about type 1a supernovas. well can, those are pretty cool
2: yeah would you like to elaborate a little bit
3: i pretty much covered it you got a white dwarf and it's accreting matter from a larger body and once it reaches a certain um, mass limit, which is called the
0: Chandra Sekar, Chandra Sekar, something like that. It's a very uh, Chandras- I've always yeah, heard
1: of Chandra Sekar.
2: You yeah. stepped up <laughs> to the microphone like
0: Chandra.
1: That might be the wrong pronunciation.
3: Chandra, <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, it's but a, after
3: that point, it it sort of undergoes like a mini explosion, and then it it keeps undergoing this process. So
0: okay. So when it when a type one A occurs and it explodes, does the white dwarf stay there and it just like blows everything else, or is that white dwarf blown apart into a cloud of stuff? What happens to the white dwarf after it explodes? It.
3: So, yeah, the white dwarf. I know it undergoes like smaller bursts. Yeah. yeah. But after after the the supernova, I believe it's it just goes smoke. off into right. the wispy yeah. nebulas that eventually eventually there's zoologies. no white dwarf left. Right.
0: Right. Eventually. It's kind of
3: I don't know how long that takes exactly, but I don't know. I, oh. I thought that that's the cooler type of supernova. Now, if you
2: see a picture of a supernova, you see all these colors and
0: all these very very vibrant colors and
2: I want to know is it
0: actually like that? I can actually say one thing. I'm not sure if you guys want to correct me or take over. When you see pictures like that, especially like um, of other planets and and things and gaseous clouds, what they do is they give colors to certain wavelengths of light Um, in in, I'm not sure if it's particular to nebulas, I know for other things. For example, we can't see x-rays, we can't see radio waves and so things like that that are outside of our visual spectrum. We'll give them artificial colors and say, okay, x-rays are this shade of blue to this shade of blue. And then you overlap that with um, ultraviolet, infrared, and it makes this really, really pretty image. And they do that with, with, um, like, you can find pictures of uh, Mars and things, and it looks bluish and yellowish. and Well, no, it actually looks reddish-brown, but that's boring, and we want to compare sure. things and see what's around so you say okay things with this composition are blue and they stand out is that is that
1: correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's false False color compositions essentially. Makes you, them prettier. <laughs> yeah there's some cool pictures of the sun too that you can look up that's essentially where they overlap the sun because if the sun emits all sorts of radiation so you get x-rays you get uh, I don't think the sun does not emit a gamma rays but you get x-rays you get UV you get optical you get mid-IR far-IR and you can just take all that and you can just map it to essentially a color and
0: okay and that's not to happy. say the visible spectrum isn't beautiful because it is oh okay um, all right but a lot like so you just kind of have to pay attention the the my opinion the best ones are the overlapping ones for sure so my i i never i was listening to all you guys i forgot to think of my own i would say that my favorite phenomenon would be when a, a giant star, when the process of collapsing into a neutron star, because this is this is you, Monica. Um, this is like your jam, right? Sort of. Sort of. My understanding of it is that you have a really, really massive thing, and like we said before, with the Chandrasekhar limit. With the limit, um, you have the pressure pushing outward on a star, gravity pulling it back in, and then. As there's more and more mass, it pushes down harder and harder toward the center, and then after a while, it cr- crumbles like if you put a vacuum on a, on a can of soda, sort of thing. <laughs> and then it does that multiple times, right? And the neutron star is as compressed and as compact as you can get it.
3: Yeah, you can't. You can't get more compact than a ball of neutrons.
0: Yeah, basically. it's like a liquid, but, neut- but that but the nuclei of atoms, right? <laughs>
3: Yeah, yeah. That's sort of what goes on. Um, it's
0: like soup. <laughs> but it's like liquid star. It just It's just so mysterious. You know, I heard and that exactly.
2: a neutron star could actually fit in an ocean. It's just so small.
3: They're, they can be pretty small. It's One of the problems is like constraining the mass and radius of neutron stars. We don't really have like a hard limit or a very like clear idea of what that relationship is that was what he was talking about earlier the equation of state of neutron stars we don't know that for sure
0: what, what are the types of sizes that you that you guess
3: um so it's a range from i think 1.3 to like three solar masses
0: in the size of smaller than the earth
3: the radius we we don't really know like what the radius range is. I think it's f- I want to say it's fifteen. Yeah, it's smaller than Earth, but
1: the, the number that I keep in my head, which may be very wrong now, but the the one that I was told a while back that I've just always held on to is ten kilometer radius. That's yeah, I was, I was gonna say
3: ten to fifteen, but I.
1: This so that they're w- tiny. A math
0: well, yeah, tiny, taking the apparently. sun. Yep. The and down been... and sinking in the ocean, but
1: there's all oh, that mass is still there. A, a neutron star could fit on Manhattan Island. That's how, <laughs> that's how small it is.
0: That, that was, that's one of my that right behind space whales. That's my favorite astrophysical. <laughs> but I'm I'm gonna drive this joke home. Space whales,
2: like,
1: okay, like, um, how do they move? And of course, oh, so dear. we uh, we're we're touting neutron stars a lot, and so it's we don't know anything about them as it turns out. Uh, and We're really bad at guessing so if you want to research neutron stars that is a really really active area And uh, if you think they're cool, you can definitely make a career out of it. Yeah, that's awesome Well, I've got my life plan yeah. <laughs> Awesome, I'll, I'll look for you on the on the archive.
0: All right, sounds good Okay, I had a few more questions about the CCRG in general, but I'm gonna skip a couple um, Well unless they're interesting Uh, What are some limitations to this CCRG's capabilities? Like, where where are your limits and what would be needed to overcome those limits right now? Okay, Skip.
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh, administrative question and uh, the answer can pretty much be summed up in one word, which is money. Yeah. Uh, Okay. I mean, the ideas are not the limit. We we have so many ideas and so many ideas for cool things that people can do and so many, the, the professors are always really excited to like try out new things and get people involved and that kind of thing, and I think the main thing is just that, without getting too political, uh, the the main limitation is just that we don't have the money to hire people. You know, we don't have the money to hire people. We don't have the resources to you know, you know. You could say, oh well, if we had a bigger computer, we could do more, and that answer is yes. But honestly, it just it just comes down to that.
0: Okay. Um- and our listener, Drew, he's actually a member of Specs. He has, a, he has a question for you guys, and that's, what's the future of the CCRG? And has your mission changed after approving um, the existence of gravitational waves and uh, the, with the current popular interest around the field um, and, like, all this exposure? Have your goals changed at all? Or are you just like, hey, yeah, now all you guys know we're here and we're going to keep doing our thing if you want to help out?
3: yeah uh, basically we, we'd love more people like Brennan said. People are a resource we need
0: sense. <laughs> right. Last
1: episode I was talking about people as
0: a resource for asteroid mining, but I think oh. this is a difference. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, uh, it's I just to just to like make sure that you're not glorifying research, you do a lot of grunt work. yeah, you still do do a lot of grunt work. A lot of it is still. You know, look at this data and plot it 18 million ways. But that's necessary in order to see the right right. thing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's necessary. But yeah, there's, there's, it's not, it's not all high minded, like, intellectuals. Yeah, you're not sitting in your, (laughs) in your reclining chair with your pipe and your coffee in the morning and discussing philosophy. Like, it's not that. (laughs) And then it kind of makes
0: your, all your research that you've done already all that more um, valuable, I guess. So.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, we're we're, we're going to keep on doing what we do and we're glad that people are noticing us now. Yeah. And uh, all the stuff that we keep are doing now, we're going to keep doing into the future. And this will hopefully generate a lot of interest, which will make um, the future of relativity really bright. Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, you've definitely got my interest. Absolutely. Oh, I was going to say
1: the same thing. Thanks yeah. a lot, you guys,
0: for coming on the show and talking about this. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Yeah. yeah. Thanks so thanks for listening we'll be back in a week or two with another discussion on space exploration science and technology if you have your own questions for brennan or monica or requests for other discussion topics send an email to specscast at gmail.com if you want to hear more consider subscribing to us on itunes or your favorite podcasting app all the past episodes are available to download from our website This podcast is made possible by RIT Specs, a space exploration student faculty research organization at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Special thanks to the Interactive Learning Grant Program for giving us the tools to promote student and faculty engagement outside of the classroom. And a special thanks to our friends on the subreddit rspacex and Kerbal Space Program podcast Kerbal Cast. Our music credit goes to Kevin Hartnow. This has been SpecsCast. We'll see you next week.